morning. Let us be reminded that all scripture is God-breathed. And may we pray that God will give us ears to truly hear his word this morning. So as uh, I said, I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, and then 12 to 17. And that's on page 761 of the Church Bible. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Our second reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 to 14. And you can find that on page 868. So from verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the Lord's word. Thank you, Michelle and Dimitri, very much indeed. Well, won't you keep your Bibles open at 1 John? And uh, I'm just going to ask for God's help as we begin. Heavenly Father, 
thank you that in your holy word you have given us spiritual light to live by. Please shine the light of your truth into our hearts this morning. Expose the areas where we're still walking in darkness by renewing our minds, changing our hearts and activating our wills so that we walk in full obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a couple of uh, generations ago, a, a wealthy family was holding um, a cultural evening for friends in their home. A famous actor was there, and uh, he was asked to recite something for the pleasure of his fellow guests. Um, he agreed, and he asked if there was anything special that his audience would like to hear. Uh, there was a brief pause, and then um, a rather elderly clergyman said, Sir, please would you recite Psalm 23 for us? Uh, the actor hesitated for just a moment, and then said, Certainly, but on one condition, that uh, after I have recited it, that you, sir, will do the same. Me, the clergyman said, rather surprised, but I'm no public speaker. But if you say so, I agree. So the actor began to recite Psalm 23. His voice and his elocution were impressive. He held his audience absolutely spellbound. And when he finished, there was a spontaneous burst of applause. Then as the applause died away, the old clergyman rose to his feet and he began to recite Psalm 23 again. The Lord is my shepherd. And so on. His voice was terribly unimpressive. Uh, his elocution was nothing special. And when he had finished, there was certainly no applause. But there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And nearly every head was bowed. And the actor stood up and in a voice that was shaking with emotion he said, my friends, I may have reached your ears and your eyes but he reached your hearts and the difference between us is this. Although I know Psalm 23, this man knows the shepherd. Now in our series, uh, we're studying a letter written by somebody who actually knew the shepherd far better than most. In his Gospel, uh, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John's great passion is that you and I should get to know the shepherd also. It's a theme that runs all the way through both his Gospel and the letter, uh, if you read both documents, you can tell straight away that they were written by the same person and that they share many of the same concerns. But there is one important difference, and you can see this by comparing the verses on the reverse of the question sheet. 
Uh, In John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, back of the question sheet, John tells us why he wrote his Gospel. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you see, in his Gospel, John wants his readers to come to know Jesus. He's writing to persuade the unbeliever. But in his letter, the purpose is slightly different. 1 John 5 verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So can you see that in his letter, John is writing for people who are already believers but he wants them to know that they know Jesus. To be sure that they really do have eternal life. Uh, The pressures on them are such that they're struggling with all kinds of doubts and insecurities. And John doesn't want that for them and he doesn't want it for us either. No, he wants all of us to know that we are safe and secure in Christ. So that even if we discovered uh, that Jesus is returning tomorrow morning, we wouldn't actually be anxious about it today. We might perhaps be rather nervous for some of our friends and family, but not for ourselves. That is John's purpose. And to help us, he's given uh, three tests or proofs that we can use to prove to our tender consciences that we really are Christians. Uh, We saw the first of these last week, didn't we? So if we ask, how do I know that I'm a real Christian, John? His answer in chapter 2, verse 3 is, well, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. In other words, do you have a new desire to understand God's word and to put it into practice that you didn't have before, asks John. And when we reply that we do, he says, see, you're a real Christian. Don't doubt it. Now you see, because that's John's purpose, it's absolutely vital that we do not apply these tests in the wrong way. So for example, John isn't giving us these tests to use on each other. Uh, If John thought that his readers would uh, start examining each other's lives critically and giving one another marks out of ten for obedience, he would frankly be appalled. That is not John's purpose and therefore it should not be our purpose either. I found uh, Martin Luther's comment really helpful here. Uh, When he had finished reading and studying 1 John, he wrote this. This is an outstanding epistle. It can buoy up afflicted hearts. Now that is absolutely right. John is setting out 
to encourage individual Christians in the context of a local church. And if we don't apply these tests to ourselves in order to achieve that objective, we'll be missing the point of the letter. Now, in our passage this morning, John moves on to the second proof of life. Uh, If the first proof was about obedience to God's commands generally, the second concerns just one command in particular, which John describes in verse 8 as new. Yes, I'm writing you a new command. And John goes on to say that he's referring to the command to love our brothers and sisters. Now, of course, um, every keen Bible reader knows that in one sense this command is not actually new at all. It was one of the first commands that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. So you remember that he rescued them from slavery in Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai. And one of the first commands he gave them is recorded in Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, love your neighbour as yourself. So, So you see, in that sense, this command is actually really very old. So what on earth does John mean when he says, no, this is actually new? Well, the clue that helped me here concerns the real meaning of the word new. Because Greek has got two different words that are both translated by the same word, new, in English. So, let me give you an example. Let's say for a moment that you're uh, fed up with your motor car. Um, It's 25 years old and it's always breaking down. So, you decide to sell it and go out and buy another one. And this car, you see, is new in the sense that it was manufactured more recently, we hope, than your other car. In other words, it's new in time. That's how we often use the word new in English, but it's not actually the meaning of the word here. No, the word here means new in quality. It's talking about something that is similar to the previous one, but far superior. Perhaps it's what the the politicians had in mind when they coined the phrase, the new South Africa. What I think that meant was that they wanted to preserve those things that were good about the old South Africa and develop those qualities but at the same time, they also wanted to leave behind everything that was bad. Now, whether they succeeded or not isn't actually the point. What we're interested in is the principle, because it's the principle that lies behind the use of the word new in verse 8. So, the command to love one another isn't new in time, there's nothing recent about it, but it is new in character. Israel consistently fails to love like this. But now, says John, because of Jesus, this command is demonstrated by Christians in a way that is completely fresh 
completely new. And John now proceeds to show us that the newness of this command has three distinct aspects to it. First, it is new in emphasis. It is new in emphasis. In verse 7, John says that this command to love one another is one which you had since the beginning. Now what he means there is he's talking about what happened when we became Christians. He's saying that before you became a Christian, you had no interest whatsoever in obeying the commands of God. Uh, Some of us actually can't remember that far back, but occasionally it is actually necessary to look back in order to appreciate the extraordinary change that God has brought about in our lives. And one of the best descriptions of what we were like before God took hold of us comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul in his letter to Titus. I would like you to turn to it, keep a finger in 1 John, turn to Titus 3 on page 848. Titus 3, page 848. page 848, Titus 3 and verse 3. Paul says, At one time, i.e. before we were Christians, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, I guess that's a pretty depressing picture, isn't it? Um, Paul hasn't really leapt in there with the airbrush, has it? Um, What I think is so remarkable is that the Apostle Paul can say that even he was like that before Christ met him on the Damascus Road. But, of course, so were you and I. Now come back to 1 John, because what John is saying in our passage is that right at the very beginning of our Christian lives, from the moment that we trust in Christ, God brings us out from the darkness of that horrible way of living in Titus 3 verse 3, and he gives us a new desire to live by the light of his truth. And the first sign that this change really has taken place is that we find ourselves being drawn towards our brothers and sisters. We weren't expecting it. We may not actually have very much in common with them. But against all our expectations, we find that we really are starting to care for one another. John says almost the same thing a little bit later in his letter. You don't have to look at it, you can if you want to. But in chapter 3, verse 14, he says this. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains 
in death. Now that's very clear, isn't it? How do I know that I really have crossed over from death to life? How can I tell? Because quite honestly, I can't see that particular transformation with my eyes. John says, no, don't worry about that. If you love your brother, you're a Christian. You have passed from death to life. Now again, I think it's terribly, terribly important that we apply this in the right way. You see, we could apply it negatively in a way that would unsettle us, I think. So, for example, um, I could say to you, put up your hand if you have never felt any animosity towards anybody in this room. I could say that, couldn't I? Of course, the thing is, you see, you don't actually have to be in any church fellowship for terribly long before you draw up a reasonably long list of reasons to grumble against your brothers and sisters. So, so let's suppose I do ask that question. I'm not asking it, don't worry. But let's suppose I do. And nobody puts their hand up. Immediately, everybody's thinking, oh dear. Well, well, maybe we're not actually real Christians after all. Now, I have to say, John is not setting out to do that. That's actually the wrong way to apply the test. So, so let's apply it differently. Let me ask you, would you rather have the company of those who scorn the Lord Jesus and uh, who use his name as a swear word and have no interest in living for him whatsoever? Or would you prefer to spend your time with people who love Jesus and who want to live his way? How would you prefer to spend an evening? Which group would you actually warm to most? Now, I'm sure that most of us would say, well, the second group. And John's point is, you see, that before you became a Christian, your response would probably have been different. And the change proves you are a real Christian. But then I guess we have to ask, well, okay, why does John put this command first? Why does he take the old love command from Leviticus 19, which frankly was just one of hundreds of commands in the Old Testament, and give it a greater emphasis than all the rest? Well, do you remember that time when Jesus was asked to name the most important commandment? He gave an absolutely fascinating reply. Name the most important commandment, Jesus, somebody said. And Jesus says, well, the most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment singular greater than these. Now, what's so interesting about that, you see, is that Jesus gave not just one answer, but two. When asked to name the most important commandment, Jesus makes no distinction 
between love for God and love for neighbour. And that's because love for neighbour proves our love for God. Now don't misunderstand what John's saying here, you see. Well, sorry, what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying if you work hard at loving your neighbour, then I'm going to take your efforts into consideration when I'm trying to decide whether you love God or not. Jesus is not saying that. No, he means that when you became a Christian, God poured his love into you. Don't look it up now, Romans 5 verse 5. It's his love, not yours. And he gave it to you. And as a result, you see, you will quite naturally start to love God and love neighbour both at the same time. That's why John says this command is so important. Because of Jesus, it has a completely new emphasis. But second... This command is also new in example. It's new in emphasis. It's new in example. Now you remember last week we saw that the Christian life is not about following a set of rules. It's about following a person. John said, you remember, that if you're a Christian, then walk as Jesus did. Follow his example. And now, as the Apostle urges his readers to love one another, he tells us that Jesus has actually shown us what this love looks like. So come with me again to verse 8. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you. Now what that last phrase means is the new command is perfectly expressed in him and you. Whatever does he mean? Well remember will you that John begins this section uh, in verse 7 by addressing his readers as dear friends. So presumably this is a community of people who know John personally and have either read the Gospel or heard the teaching in the Gospel directly from John's lips. So they would have heard John telling them about that night, that night in the upper room, when Jesus humbled himself and washed the disciples' feet. He says, doesn't he, that it was a demonstration of Jesus' love for his disciples. Now clearly that incident made a terrific impression on John because he's the only one of the Gospel writers to record it. And if we want to understand what John means by love in his letter, we actually have to travel back to that extraordinary evening and try to understand what was happening. So turn back, if you will, to John 13 and the passage that Michelle read for us a few moments ago. John 13 page 761. Now first, what I want you to notice is um, what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15 
after he had finished washing the disciples' feet. John 13, verse 14. Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So whatever it is that this foot-washing episode signifies, Jesus was giving us an example to follow. And then just a few verses later in the section that Michelle didn't read, just look at verse 34, Jesus explains the significance of his actions. Verse 34, A new command I give you, love one another, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I have no doubt that as the apostles looked back and remembered that scene, they would say, well, that was the moment when I realised what it would mean for me to love others as Jesus loved me. I realised that it would mean stripping myself of everything that might suggest that I was master of the situation. It would mean putting on the servant's towel, fetching the bowl and filling it with water and coming to my fellow disciples, humbling myself, kneeling down before them and saying, may I have the privilege of washing your dirty feet? Now, of course, this isn't what the world thinks of when it thinks about love. You see, in the West, love means tolerance, doesn't it? It means letting people live their lives without any reference to Jesus Christ whatsoever and never challenging them about it. But in the Gospel, love means coming to them and humbling ourselves before them and saying, my friend, your dirty feet need to be washed by God's grace. Now, I'm sure that you would agree with me that it is becoming increasingly different, difficult um, in our world to live as a Christian. And of course that's especially true, isn't it, in places like Iraq and Syria, we know that. But even in so-called Christian countries like South Africa, to, to be a disciple of Jesus and actually to put him first can bring us into situations where we are crushed and humiliated. Increasingly, people aren't simply indifferent to us. They don't scoff at us and say, well, (laughs) he's just a very keen Christian. No, no, they're angry. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think, you see, in that context, we need to know, don't we, well, how can we be strong? How can we overcome this hostility? Well, Jesus shows us the way, doesn't he? Jesus conquers by kneeling. 
Jesus conquers by humbling himself. Jesus conquers by genuine love. What's so interesting, of course, is that the world doesn't really know what to do with that. Uh, It's strangely attracted to it, but it can't imitate it. Why not? Why not? Why can't the world imitate that kind of love? We'll come back to 1 John, where John explains that the ability to truly love someone doesn't depend on your personality or your education or your background. It depends entirely on your response to God's word. And to make the point, he gives us a contrast, doesn't he? Come with me to verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. The contrast's obvious, isn't it? You see, if you hate or despise any of the brothers and sisters, and he's talking about Christians, then you are living in spiritual darkness. God's word has never become light for you to live by. And the hallmark of the person living in spiritual darkness is hatred. He hates the Christian and uh, he thinks that he's absolutely right to do so. And John's verdict on him in verse 11 is that the darkness has blinded him. I don't know whether they do it now, but years ago they used to put um, ponies down at the bottom of coal mines to pull the trucks along. And after years and years of living in the darkness, they would eventually lose their sight. Well, that's what's happening here. How different is the man in verse 10? His whole life has been lit up by God's word. And he can see things clearly. And he knows that this light is entirely the result of God's love and grace. Unless God had intervened, well, he'd still be stumbling around in the darkness. And he's so grateful, you see, that he willingly follows Jesus' example. He goes out of his way to serve his brothers and sisters. He loves them. And he demonstrates this by actively looking for opportunities to encourage them and to build them up. Now, friends, I think it's a very sad fact indeed that some of us here this morning have been in churches where people actively avoid each other. Uh, What happens is they see each other's dirty feet and say to themselves, oh no, not him again. But what Jesus is demonstrating, you see, in the foot washing and what John is commending here in his letter is setting a totally different standard. It's saying, 
God has given you his light. If he's done that, then you know that he's also given you a capacity to love other Christians that you didn't have before. It's a natural consequence of being in the light. And it means that whenever anyone approaches you in our church family, though you may see their dirty feet, mentally you're going to be on your knees thinking, how can I serve him or her? How can I build this person up? How can I show the love of the Lord Jesus to them? And we won't be thinking, oh no, how do I avoid him? So this this command, this radical command to love one another is new in emphasis, it's new in example and lastly and briefly, it's new in experience. Now I have to confess that um, verses 12 to 14 in this letter, chapter 2, they've always been a bit of a puzzle to me. Um, I don't think I really understood what they meant until I had to study them for you this morning. But the NIV has done us a terrific service because they've printed these verses as poetry. And it's telling us, you see, that John is is taking a pause from the teaching in order to celebrate something that is true and important. The simplest way to get hold of the message is to think of it as a poem with two short verses and one long chorus, which John repeats. So who's he actually talking to? Well, some commentators think that John is addressing three different age groups in the congregation. He, first of all, goes into the creche and talks to the children, and then he talks to the senior citizens, and then he talks to those in between at the end. But that actually can't be right, because throughout the letter, whenever John uses the phrase, dear children, he's addressing the whole congregation. He does it eight times in the letter and it would be very strange if it didn't mean the same thing here. So when John says, I write to you dear children, which he does twice, what he says applies to every Christian. And that is then followed by two separate words. One to the older Christians, the spiritual fathers and mothers, And then a word to those who are younger Christians, the young men, the young women. So, first of all, what is it that is true for all Christians that John is celebrating with us in this poem? Well, they're the two great privileges, aren't they, enjoyed by every Christian. First, in verse 12, John says, Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. He's been your atoning sacrifice. And then second, in verse 13b, you have known the Father. I think actually that should be, you know the Father. That's what it is in the ESV. In other words, because your sins have been forgiven, you have fellowship with God as your heavenly Father. And as we've already seen in this letter, Christianity is fellowship with God. And John says, Christian, 
because your sins have been forgiven, you've got it. You've got this fellowship with God. But, now this is where it gets interesting. Fellowship with God also means fellowship with other believers. And so I think the theme of this little poem is quite simply, enjoy it. Enjoy the experience of your fellowship together. See how it ties in with the theme of love? Love your spiritual fathers and mothers. You know, they've known the father for 30, 40, 50 years. They've seen how God works. They've known the joys and the sorrows. And they've learned to fit in with the Heavenly Father's wisdom. Ask them about it. Love the young men and women. Because they've overcome the evil one. Now that's an interesting phrase. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that they're different from their contemporaries. They've taken a stand for Jesus. Hasn't always made them popular. But the word of God lives in them, verse 14. And it's making them strong. So, you older ones, praise God because these younger ones have overcome the evil one. Thank God for them. Encourage them. Get to know them. Tell them that you're praying for them. And you younger ones, there aren't many of us, or you, <laughs> go to, to Raymond or Don or Godfrey and ask them now, tell me again, how did you overcome the evil one? Friends, this is the loving fellowship that John is calling for. You know, Christian fellowship isn't uh, a cup of tea and a soggy biscuit for five minutes after the service, is it? It isn't. No. John is saying, if you're a Christian, you have the privilege of being able to get to know about the spiritual journey of every other Christian in this church family. What a privilege. Don't squander it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that in your mercy and grace you have called us out of the darkness into your marvellous light. And at the same time you have delivered us from the darkness of hatred and malice and given us new hearts to love one another. Thank you for this assurance of our fellowship with you. Please help us to, to grow in our love for one another and to humble ourselves in service of one another as we follow the wonderful example of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.